Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Welcome back to Anti-Monitor. Today is the 5th of November, and with a contentious election looming in the immediate future, we've decided to dive into the neo-political thriller V for Vendetta. But first, Bertie and I cast our ballots for our favorite political movies of all time. So throw on your Guy Fox mask and hop aboard the explosion train. It's remembering time. Listening to Anti Monitor from DoomRocket.com. I knew it, I'm surrounded by assholes. I'm not even gonna dignify myself with a response to that. That's right, it's Anti Monitor time again. I'm your host, Matthew Birdman Fleming, and with me as always, Jared Jones, editor in chief of DoomRocket.com and freelance terror expert. Freelance? Nobody pays me for anything. That's why it's free. Oh. Free Lance. Oh, I didn't realize Lance was in the room. Hi, Lance. Hey, Lance. <laughs> Free Lance. Uh, do you consider yourself something of a an amateur terror expert? No, I know nothing of terrorists, nor do I want to. I spent a lot of time, you know, watching conspiracy vids yeah. on uh, the internet. Oh, I know. You must have some interesting dreams. Ooh, I tell you what, I had a dream about buying some chicken tenders today. Oh man. Before we talk too much about chicken tenders, uh. We are feeling political right now. We it's, are. Well, it's Guy Fox Day. Happy Guy Fox Day. Happy Bert. Guy Fox Day to you too. Remember, remember the fifth of November. I like to just always switch the number up sometimes, just to be funny. The fifth of the the seventh of November. Remember, remember the first of November. Remember, remember the twentieth of November. Mm -hmm. I like to remember the twenty fourth of November because that is Turkey Day. I like for people to remember the 29th of May because it's my birthday. Oh. I, no. That's true. I thank, thankfully for you, I never forget it. Ah, oh, jeez. Well, since we're talking about political things, uh, Jared, what are some of your favorite political movies? There's a lot out there. 
Well, of course, in the wide swath of political genre, I prefer the subgenre uh, political thriller. Oh. Uh, those are my favorites, especially uh, right around the end of uh, the Cold War era mm. when um, <laughs> Hollywood was putting out some really crazy wild stuff. Like they had guys like Rod Serling from like the Twilight Zone writing scripts. Crazy stuff. Uh, and that prompts me to my first pick, which is Seven Days in May, uh, directed by John Frankenheimer. And it's got, holy cow, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. I think uh, the second or maybe the last of the three films those two guys made together. Uh, it's got Frederick March. Uh, who plays the president. You know? <laughs> and um, it's got Ava Gardner in it, late career Ava Gardner. Just this really amazing cast, but it's got this really crazy paranoid thriller where like, there's like this conspiracy to overthrow the government and it's going to happen over the weekend and everyone's trying to like figure out who's done it. And Kirk Douglas is like, well, I have certain things that I know, but I don't know who I can tell because who the hell can I trust? And that's a, kind of a prevailing theme through a lot of my picks for this week who's around that corner who's holding the smoking gun sometimes the mysteries are more terrifying than the actual answers and uh, these movies specialize keeping the mystery held aloft and if anyone could handle the real holy shit moments it was rod serling so definitely seven days in may is my first pick i am prepared to brand you for what you are general a strutting egoist with a napoleonic power complex and an out-and-out -out traitor. I know you think I'm a weak sister, General. But when it comes to my oath of office, and defending the Constitution of the Nobody United States... Nobody has to States, teach me how to salute a flag. Somebody has to teach you about the democratic processes that that flag represents. But don't you presume to take on that job, Mr. President. Because, frankly, you're not qualified. Your course of action in the past year has bordered on criminal negligence. This treaty with the Russians is a violation of any concept of security. You're not a weak sister, Mr. President. You're a criminally weak sister. Uh, what's yours, Bert? What do you got for me? Well, uh, unlike you, I'd like to steer toward the political comedies because yeah. real life is so utterly terrifying that uh, I don't think I can handle being thrilled too hard sure. most of the time. If I'm going to get thrilled, I want it to be like something completely fantastical that is never going to happen. Or you're actually watching Michael Jackson's thriller. That, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, my first pick is the debut of the directing career of Tim Robbins <laughs> in the uh, American-British satirical mockumentary, Bob Roberts. Bob Roberts. Bob I've, Roberts. I've seen that one. That's, it's so funny because it seems like it's just a really terribly boring movie, mm -hmm. but there's something about it. It's dry. It's, it's quite dry. Pretty dry. Like Altman dry. Uh -huh. Yeah. But I enjoy it. Good. Uh, what's, uh, what's your next pick? On the list. Well, um, I, full disclosure, I have two John Frankenheimer uh, movies on my list because how could I not? But I'm going to uh, sandwich one film in between this Frankenheimer sandwich, and it's uh, none other than Notorious by Alfred Hitchcock. Notorious might be my favorite Hitchcock film, period, but um, insofar as his uh, political thrillers went, of which he did not make many. True. I think Notorious rests uh, right in the top five of the best films he ever made. And for me personally... Definitely in the top 10 best films I've ever seen, period. We've got Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, um, Claude Rains plays the very callous and aloof would-be Nazi Alexander Sebastian. Mm. And Cary Grant uh, plays a fellow who stalks Nazis and he's trying to infiltrate uh, Sebastian's inner circle. So he finds a, a way in via Ingrid Bergman. Cary Grant's after really is kind of incidental to the entire plot of the film. It's the reason why he's there in the first place. But really what it's about is 
watching Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant make out, which is hot stuff. A beautiful, brilliant use of Hitchcock's MacGuffin in a otherwise uh, sumptuous and starkly shot film. It's uh, some of the best use of black and white I've seen in a film. Noirish without being overtly noirish. You wow. know what I mean? Yeah. Damn good stuff. Oh, you idiot. What are you sore about? You knew very well what I was doing. Did I? You could have stopped me with one word. No, you wouldn't. You threw me at him. I threw you at nobody. Didn't you tell me to go ahead? A man doesn't tell a woman what to do. She tells herself. You almost had me believing in that little hokey-pokey miracle of yours, that a woman like you could ever change her spots. Oh, you rotten. That's why I didn't try to stop you. The answer had to come from you. I see. Some kind of love test. That's right. Well, you never believed in me anyway, so what's the difference? Lucky for both of us, I didn't. It wouldn't have been pretty if I believed in you. If I'd figured she'd never be able to go through with it, she'd been made over by love. If you only once had said that you loved me, would have. Listen, you chalked up another boyfriend, that's all. No harm done. I hate you. There's no occasion to. You're doing good work. Number 10's out in front. Looks as if Sebastian knows how to pick them. Is that all you have to say to me? Dry your eyes, baby. It's out of character. What's next for you, Bert? Well, uh, once again, I'm going to stay in the uh, jovial land well... of, of political comedies. I've always been a big fan of The Distinguished Gentleman, <sighs> starring Eddie... Murphy. You've got a thing for the Edward Murrays. Up to a certain point in Eddie Murphy's career, mm -hmm. I would definitely say absolutely. And this is in a little bit of a sweet spot. It's early 90s still. He hadn't quite gotten that weird, that weird like perma eyebrow thing. <laughs> he was still, you know, instead of just smirking, he was still smiling. Yeah, he, he resembled an actual human being. Yeah. We, um, we discussed the fall of Eddie Murphy in our Beverly Hills Cop episode. That's true. But the supporting cast of white people is just <laughs> outstanding. Everything you would want in a uh, political comedy about the outsider, the African-American who, you know, works his way in and tries to buck the system. You got Lane Smith. Oh, Perry White from Perry White and Clark. Clark. Yep. Uh, Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Baker, uh, host of uh, USA's Up All Night. That's right. Uh, Kevin McCarthy. And then um, Charles S. Dutton. Love Charles Dutton. Yeah. Rock. Yeah. Well, what about you? What's your third pick for well, your favorite political thriller? Yeah, well, I already spoiled the fact that it's a John Frankenheimer film. But John Jingle Frankenheimer. Uh, I saw this movie when I was a really young kid, and I didn't get it at first. Uh, I only watched it because my grandfather really had a thing for Frank Sinatra. The Manchurian Candidate, mm. which was later remade into a, a Jonathan Demme film starring Denzel Washington, of all things, which was not very good. No, not very good at all. Um, but this one with Lawrence Harvey and Angela Lansbury, of course, Murder, She Wrote, mm -hmm. Uh uh, is featured in this film, uh, which is kind of like the worst case Cold War scenario, wherein Russia, or excuse me, the Soviet Union, uh, creates a sleeper agent, which, uh, considering what's been going on these days with the FBI allegedly tamping down on uh, Russia's involvement with the uh, tampered election that we have uh, going the, the on Donald. Th uh, through uh, allegedly the Donald. The Manchurian Candidate resonates more than it should right now in a very palpable and terrifying way. It hits a little bit closer to home than mm -hmm. one would uh, comfortably prefer. Do yourself a favor this political season. Watch this movie. Manchurian Candidate closes out my three picks of favorite political thrillers. But I know you got one left for a couple of yucks. What is it, Bird? But my third and final pick uh, would be the uh, political comedy... Dave. Oh, Dave. Starring Kevin Klein. Oh my god, what a stupid movie. It was so dumb, I love it. Why do you like the dumbest movies? I love dumb movies. It breaks my heart. It's got Sigourney Weaver, Frank Langella. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, 
Uh, Kevin Klein plays both the president and a guy who looks exactly like the president named Dave. Dave. Yeah, that's uh, the title. I also uh, just really enjoy any time uh, people swap roles in movies. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a big fan of the vice versas and the 18 again. And Literally the worst kind of movies that exist. Absolutely. The, the 20 Freaky Fridays out there. Oh, yeah. I love mm -hmm. What was that one that uh, Judge Reinhold did? That was vice versa. Was, was it? Him and uh, Fred Savage. Wasn't there a movie called 18 again? I just mentioned 18 again. <laughs> that was with Charlie Slattery and... George Burns. Mm -hmm. George Burns, toward the end of his career in life, yeah. uh, doesn't spend much time. Most of the movie, he spends it in a coma. But see, now we're digressing into other great films. <laughs> if sure. if you ever accident, if you're like on Amazon Prime or Netflix or one of the streaming services, and you see like, oh, I can watch Dave for free, mm -hmm. then it's worth it. Sure. If it's two ninety nine, maybe consider something else. But if it's free, watch Dave. It, it might give you a yuck. If it's two ninety nine, you're feeling fine. If it's free, go on a spree. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Dave, have you ever driven through a red light? Huh? You know, on, on an empty road when there's nobody around and you know it's safe? I'm not sure. I might have. Well, let's say, let's say your mother is in the car and you have to get her to the hospital. You'd do it then for sure, wouldn't you? Yes, I guess I would. Now, let's say the whole country is, is in the car. The entire United States of America. In the car? In the car. I see what you mean. Well, now that we've gotten all of that out of our system, mm -hmm. it's time for us to really deep, <laughs> deep dive into the one of the longest movies we've ever had to watch for this for this podcast. We're talking about V for Vendetta. Yes. Power. Words are for the means to meaning and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? That was produced by the Wachowskis, the Wachowski siblings, mm -hmm. uh, directed by James McTeague. James McTeague, yeah, that's that, right. It was his first. He went on to direct The Raven, that stupid-ass uh, Edgar Allan Poe movie with John Cusack in it, which visually looks very similar to V for Vendetta in a lot of ways, like the, the cobblestones of uh, dystopic uh, uh, London look oh. very much like the cobblestones of, you know, Baltimore. Baltimore. I mean, uh, and all the fog, my God, the fog, the flashes of black capes and sinister shadowy villains with blades and blah, 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 and it's all... He, James Fatigue found it an aesthetic and he stuck with it. And you gotta, you gotta give him credit for it. Because this guy for a long time had been like, a, what, uh, the Wachowski cinematographer or the DOP? Uh, he uh, worked on the Matrix movies. He did. And it shows. Absolutely. Because uh, what this movie is, is a two and a half hour distillation of a 10 issue uh, maxi series by Alan Moore and Dave Lloyd. Aside from superficialities, structurally, the two stories couldn't be further apart. Really? Yeah. It carries the idea. The, the idea of it is the same. Beneath this mask, there is an idea, Mr. Creedy. And ideas are bulletproof. The idea of the, the story itself uh, also gets distilled down to one of V, played by Hugo Weaving's many catchphrases. Uh, my favorite being, People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. 
and that is essentially the the crux of this entire film and the crux of the entire uh maxi series as a whole and the crux of the entire anonymous movement that <laughs> followed uh so heavily after we thank you v for vendetta well no it comes down to alan moore and dave lloyd because uh it was their creative decision to use the guy fox mask as a symbol because uh v in the comics doesn't always wear that mask sometimes he wears a clown's mask sometimes he wears like a like a operatic like demon's mask with long nose and like kind of like looks like a goblin dave lloyd draws faces in the comics you know, from people who could or could not be V, because in the uh, comic books you don't really know who he You never find out who he is, just like you do in the film, but other people in the story could be V, and you have no idea. And the film does play with that a little bit here, uh, very briefly with Stephen Fry's character. The mask itself is just throughout the entire comic book, and the way people's cheekbones are always so rosy, and their smiles are always a little more creepier than they should be. Uh, whereas in the film... It, uh, the mask itself is a symbol that is propagated in gorilla style throughout London, wherein uh, England remains the sole superpower of the world after America descends into chaos uh, after their war over in Iraq didn't go so great. And that kind of uh, brings us around to the whole point of why this movie was made in the first place. The Wachowskis wanting to make a movie, an anti-Patriot uh, Act, an anti-post-9-11 Bush administration film, and... Al Moore wasn't into it. No? At all. Didn't want his name on it. A lot of people say that it was the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that really made him make that decision. But he read the screenplay. He read the Wachowski screenplay, which, if as a writer, if Alan Moore ever read anything of mine, I'd be flattered as hell. I don't know what Lana and Lily Wachowski were thinking when they found out that Moore poo-pooed their script. Uh, the point is, is that Alan Moore drafted V for Vendetta as a response to Margaret Thatcher's, I don't want to say rule... <laughs> I mean, her reign of terror. Her, her reign uh, as a politician in England and not a parable uh, for political uh, actions that would take place 20 years later. So uh, I think his rationale was if you want to tell a story about or uh, a cautionary tale about your government, come up with a story of your own. But fortunately, they didn't do that because anytime Lana and Lily Wachowski come up with an original story of their own, we get shit like Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas is an adaptation, but uh, I was going to say Jupiter Ascending. Okay, Which yeah, I reviewed, and that is just some hot-ass garbage. Oh, well, I mean, as a human-dog-space uh, person. You are royalty now. I'm a splice. You don't understand what that means, but I have more in common with a dog than I have with you. I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. Well, I would say if the Wachowskis were responsible for three good films, we got Bound, The Matrix, and now V for Vendetta. Even though V for Vendetta is a little schlocky, and uh, they did not direct it, their stamp is all over this thing, aesthetically, oh, definitely. I mean, it, when you read uh, the comic book, you would never in your life picture that V would become like this knife-twirling uh, Zorro. Zorro type. What you gonna do? We've swept this place. You've got nothing. Nothing but your bloody knives and your fancy karate gimmicks. We have guns. Oh, no, what do you have of bullets? And the hope that when your guns are empty, I'm no longer standing. Because if I am, you'll all be dead before you've reloaded. He's but, a swashbuckler. Yeah, he becomes literally a swashbuckler. There are a couple of moments that McTeague uses uh, that he lifts from uh, Dave Lloyd's uh, panel work. And there's that moment where V is... Uh, catapulting over the rooftops of a church to put the kibosh on a bishop and he's just like 
really slow motion descending on the roof and his cape flurls out from under him. And it looks like a swashbuckler would in a film like, uh, like the Count of Monte Cristo. Like, yeah, like the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, Crisco, the Count of Monte Crisco, yeah, the fattening swashbuckler, Which, yeah, and 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 that's not on accident because throughout this movie, they took full advantage of like this very complex narrative that Alan Moore uh, and Dave Lloyd put together and created one of their own. It looks on on surface level, V for Vendetta looks shiny and superficial and kind of dumb. Like, uh, I think McTeague used all the takes where uh, the actors were using their broadest facial expressions. Uh, except for uh, the first act of the film, uh, which I wrote a note uh, for Natalie Portman. First act, more like can't act. Oh, man. She's she's so wooden and plain and just not acting up to her own standards. You weren't buying it. In the first act. Once the stakes are raised, she kind of puts a little more effort in. You know, this is no Black Swan performance from Natalie Portman. And I would say that, from, and you are right, there are moments in the beginning of the film where she is definitely a little hammy. And I swear that the first line she uttered in the film, she had 100% her own American accent. James McTeague, maybe if you're going to hire an American actress who doesn't have a great British accent, maybe just... Uh, let her let her be American. Well, then you would have to come up with an explanation of what an American is doing in a, a country that will not let any immigrants in. That includes Americans, because right now, because in the story they they say United States has descended into civil war. That's right. They're they're suffering from droughts and plague, and they need help desperately. And they send over a shipment of wheat and tobacco as a gesture of goodwill. It's the first. I, news item we hear in the film. So if you were to make Natalie Portman an American in this film, I would argue <laughs> that would just make this movie 100% worse. So I appreciate that Natalie Portman went the extra mile to at least adopt an English accent that was passable. Not great, not phenomenal, certainly not Oscar-worthy, but passable. It was Oscar Meyer-worthy because oh. <laughs> I was a hot dog of an accent. Yeah, I was gonna, thought you were going to say ham. I'm to say but um, for all the things that uh, V for Vendetta gets wrong, and there are some things undeniably that it gets wrong, uh, there are a hundred th other things that it totally gets right. I think because the Wachowski script is so ambitious and McTeague was so hungry to make this movie, um, it, it shows in the subtleties in this movie. Some of them are very obvious, others are not, like the sequence where V knocks over a chain of uh, dominoes. And you were like, I wonder how long it took him to set up those dominoes. Well, in the comic book, V spent the entire uh, length of the story's narrative setting up dominoes. Like, it's always, like, the first or last panel that you see in each issue. And by the issue's end, or the series end, he knocks it over and everything kind of just yes. falls into place into the form of a V. That I is, do understand yeah. how metaphors work. Oh, of course. So, yeah, that would be an obvious use of one. But were you aware of some of the more subtle ones? Oh, no, please point those out to me. Did you notice that all the British people in this movie that were not detained were all white? Yes. Which is to imply the, the, the efficacy of Chancellor Sutler's um, reign, mm -hmm. uh, wherein they're cleansing, wrapped around in uh, quotation marks, um, all the undesirables, which is pretty much all black people, all the gay people, all the Muslims, anybody who's not you know, Catholic or Christian. But um, another one is that the uh, Eggie in the Basket that V makes mm -hmm. uh, for Evie was cooked in butter, and she remarks about how she never 
Had, she had, had butter since she was a child. Well, then later on, when Stephen Fry's character Gordon makes one for her, they don't mention it, but the shot of the eggie in the basket is cooked far differently than the one that V made, and they're both using the same pan, but you could tell the other one was cooked in margarine. It, it's less sumptuous. It looks a little untasty, and they don't mention it, but it's in there. And uh, you can tell because there are margarine trucks that are driven through London a couple of times in the film. So, yeah, people don't get butter. The Chancellor gets butter. The hell with everybody else. I thought that was really awesome. It's kind of better for you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't taste as good. Yeah. Of course, we're delving into deeper spoiler territory. So sorry about this, folks. But um, that moment where Gordon is black bagged by Creedy's men and Evie's on the run. And she gets snagged by one of uh, Creedy's fingermen. Well, in that moment when she's initially swiped up, if you freeze frame the image... The guy wearing the mask has severe burns around the eye holes. So, like, around his eyes, it's just, like, all these burns. So, you know it's V. Yeah. And it, the voice is definitely Hugo Weaving. But you're not paying attention to that at first. You're just caught up in it. <laughs> of course, the only time where Hugo Weaving more closely resembles his Matrix roots is when he's cast in shadow wearing that suit in the uh, torture chamber that V constructed for Evie. Um, so, that's a nice little nod in parallel to the Matrix films and to Hugo Weaving. Also, uh, his... Uh, Merkwood disguise right. yeah. is, is meant not only to evoke V's hat, um, wig, and uh, pointed mask, but also Alan Moore himself, mm -hmm. which I thought was an equally nice touch. That's right, because uh, in real life, Alan Moore looks kind of like a hobo. Mm -hmm. um, the character Valerie that we only see in flashbacks, um, and more on her in a minute, uh, the Valerie we see during like um, Evie's reveries when she's reading the letter that she finds in the chamber cell. Yes. And uh, during the, Dr. Delia's uh, journal entries is played by a certain actress. But when V reveals that Valerie actually did exist and we finally see a poster for the film that she says that she started in called The Salt Flats, the actress in that poster is a different actress, which I thought was really interesting. It, it makes it feel a little less real. You might even call it surreal. Yeah, it is. It is really surreal because there's a moment... Uh, where we have two flash, there are only two flashback sequences in the entire film. One we're supposed to be taken as literal, and it's the doctor's uh, journal entries about about this uh, facility that uh, fostered the plague. Uh, they gave people the plague so they could find the cure. Yes. And then later is the flashback with Valerie and about her entire life, and we're supposed to ultimately believe that it's fake, but in reality it's real. But then we see an added dimension to it via that film poster, so it creates almost a cubed effect wherein we don't know what position we're supposed to be looking at. It throws us askew. So we askew. don't. Yeah, exactly. And it's also the only film I can think of that actually shows us glimpses of what's about to come next. Like um, when Stephen Ray is monologuing and he's talking about all these coincidences that are adding up and he's like, I feel like I could see it all. Uh, if I look back, if I step back far enough, I feel like I could see what's happening next. And we actually do see glimpses of what's coming. I suddenly had this feeling that everything was connected. It's like I could see the whole thing. One long chain of events that stretched all the way back before Lark Hill. I felt like I could see everything that had happened. And everything that was going to happen. Like a perfect pattern laid out in front of me. And I realized that we were all part of it. 
an old trap, my head. So do you know what's going to happen? No. It was a feeling. Wow. I mean, the, it, the movie is far deeper than anyone really gives it credit for. And that's not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the parallels that you drew uh, earlier between... V and uh, Edmond Dantes and uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, the reason why they drew that parallel in the film so uh, tightly is because their narratives, Edmond Dantes and V, are pretty much the same. It's like Edmond Dantes was uh, imprisoned by a, a power, a superpower, and um, he was tortured and, and kept away and uh, was left there to die, but then he escaped and assumed a different identity and got his revenge and ultimately got what he wanted, and that's ostensibly V's art, but he's doing it for the greater good. Count of Monte Cristo, with Robert Donat as Edmund Dantes. Not my sword, Montenegro, but your past that disarmed you. Gets me every time. Never seen it. Really? Would you like to? Does it have a happy ending? As only celluloid can deliver. Okay. Put the sword away. And I think one other one I'll give you before I start really boring you and the people listening at home is the moment where Evie is free of V. She's changed, but she's free of V. And she's walking through an open court and she sees that young girl with the big Coke bottle glasses spray painting a V over the Unity poster. Well, she runs away when she sees Evie because she's frightened. But when Evie looks over to see what she's doing, she's spray painting the V symbol but it's incomplete. But it's supposed to mirror what V was doing at the beginning of the film when he introduces himself to uh, Evie. He scrawls a V into the poster with his blades and puts it into his uh, puts the blade into a sheath, satisfied that he has now uh, illustrated that he has an intent to do harm to this government. Whereas the girl would do the same with her own act of sedition. She's too frightened to finish the job. Evie looks at the image and realizes she has to finish it herself. It's, it's astonishing how awesome those little visual cues are just there for you to appreciate if you choose to, but you don't have to to appreciate the overall uh, course of the film. It is a very dense, very deep movie. Upon my second viewing, uh, I did find it a lot more engaging. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's a little slow in pacing at some points. Yeah. And uh, the, the story is so convoluted. It, it, it can be. It gets there. Yeah. Um, and the way they kind of switch back and forth between the arc of V and Evie, mm -hmm. between them and then on this side, Stephen Ray trying to figure out what's going on and we're, you know, detecting. Yeah, they're having to detect. Uh, and he is <laughs> the least inspired looking detective I've ever seen in my life. Oh, I love Stephen Ray. I love Stephen Ray too. And I love him in this movie, but he looks constantly so defeated. Well, that's the point. He's browbeaten by uh, uh, Chancellor Sutler's like demands, constantly being a part of this uh, overreaching conspiracy of which he knows nothing about. He's just been a pawn his entire life. He suspects it, but he could never prove it. And then all of a sudden, Veep comes along, and all of a sudden, the structures are shaking loose. I mean, I think Stephen Ray was a perfect cast. So I think that he is not British. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. Irish, that one. That is true. He has a better British accent than uh, Natalie Portman. <sighs> Boy. Uh, 
So you want to talk about uh, some of the rest of the cast? Of course. Uh, Stephen Fry. Yes. Love Stephen Fry. So good in this movie. Uh, he is great. But with that bravado, with that mm -hmm. uh, carelessness, he really thinks that he has the power to get away with his Benny Hill poke at the Chancellor. Oh, my God. When you watched it, you knew he was fucked. It was but, just like, but, dude, you were every, with every movement I'm, like, witnessing, before I saw the... And getting hit with the club, I was like, oh, you're you're getting the shit beat out of you, bud. But it's like the most British uh, bit of comedy that could have ever possibly happened. And like, I love that they use the Benny Hill music because uh, he's trying to remind the citizens of London that it's okay to laugh at, at the government. It's okay for satire. It's the equivalent of like Johnny Carson doing a, a, a similar mock-up of Richard Nixon, except uh, playing the music for, oh, I don't know. The Keystone Cops? Keystone Cops, uh, the Dukes of Hazard. Pick something that is instantly iconic and recognizable, but also associated with levity and good humor, and, and that's pretty much the same thing. I also just generally love the song Yakety Sax. Yeah, Yakety Sax. I, I like to torture people with that sometimes if... Mm. Uh, in my past, if I had control over music, I would just play Yakety Sax on repeat until someone complained. That sounds like something you would do. Nine minutes. Yeah. Nine minutes it took. <laughs> but in addition to, uh, we talked about Stephen Ray, Stephen Fry, mm -hmm. uh, Roger Allen. Yeah. Roger Allen had me 100% convinced that... I was watching Christopher Hitchens playing a parody <laughs> of of that type of person. Oh, uh, you mean of uh, Bill O'Reilly? Like the English version of Bill O'Reilly, yeah. a shill for the government to uh, propagate uh, horrible policies, to uh, use spin, to uh, fracture the party that opposes him and all that nonsense. Yeah, he... He was he was effective. I wanted him to die quickly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's interesting because in the comics, uh, Louis Prothero, as every other member of this uh, shadow cabinet, as they're wiped out by V uh, in the comics, they're wiped out in a in a, a manner similar to that of which they inflicted pain on on London. Whereas in the film, they die a little more in in a more sophisticated manner. They have a little more dignity when they die. You're going to kill me now. I killed you ten minutes ago. While you slept. Is there any pain? No. Thank you. With the exception of Prothero, who dies naked in a shower, uh, covered in vomit. Yeah, he just wants them to de to be dead. Yeah, well, because their deaths are symbolic, and they they'll fracture. They're the structures of uh, Sutler's administration. Like um, Prothero was the voice of London. There was the audio surveillance, which yeah. is the ear. Uh, Eddie Eddie Mar played by Eddie Marson, who mm -hmm. I love to death. John. Hurt. Yeah, John or was, Hurt. Or as I called him, John Ouch. John Ouch. What an amazing second half of his career has he had. <laughs> he's he's the go-to for every almost every single fantasy, sci-fi, or comic book adaptation you could think of. I mean, look at it. He was in Hercules. He was in Hellboy. War Doctor? Mm-hmm. That right there is... Was Probably huge, one of his most iconic roles, absolutely. Huge. Uh, huge. Huge. Uh, but yeah, he's, you know, he's a really great, effective, mean guy. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate his bluster, too, because he's very blustery. And I, I appreciate the Orwellian, like, Big Brother uh, view screen that they have in, in the conference room for all of uh, Sutler's uh, fingers and ears and all, all the dudes that were for him in the room. He's screaming at them always from one image from the angle of shoulders up 
face front ham fit. This is one of the more ham fisted visual elements of the film where it's patently obvious that the, the government is blatantly evil because Bush allegory. Tonight, I will speak directly to these people and make the situation perfectly clear to them. The security of this nation depends on complete and total compliance. Tonight, any protester, any instigator or agitator will be made example of. <clears throat> Chancellor, there is a contingency that has not been addressed. Oh, what is that, Mr. Dask? Should the terrorists succeed? He won't. I understand that it is highly unlikely, but if he does... If he does, and something happens to that building, the only thing that will change, the only difference that it will make, is that tomorrow morning, instead of a newspaper, I will be reading Mr. Creedy's resignation! In the comics, uh, Sutler actually has an arc. Um, he's a character in the story as opposed to a, a plot device. In, in the film, he's treated precisely that, a plot device. Uh, when uh, they have the Sutler stand-in in, in uh, uh, Gordon's uh, television show, it's John Hurt, but he's wearing you know really thick stage makeup, so it, we're under the assumption that it's an actor. Um, of course it is, uh, because we don't really see John Hurt in person as the character until the very end of the film, wherein he's he's... Gets his brains blown out. That uh, that was probably one of the biggest disappointing moments of the film was that was the way the chancellor went out. Mm -hmm. The what is it called? The finger finger guy. Yeah, the finger, finger banger. Guy. The finger banger and his <laughs> dudes get get the chancellor and you know at this point what's his name Creedy is you know yeah. pissed at the his boss anyway so he wants to kill him but you know they they got him picked up they take the bag off and he's sniveling and he's crying yeah. and he's like oh this is what i've been doing to people this sucks i just pissed my pants he, you know he's pissing out the glass of warm milk he had the night before that's right yeah. Ugh, who drinks warm milk anymore you know i find it to be quite comforting i'm kidding i i haven't had a glass of warm milk i think in my entire life yeah unless it was mixed with some coffee but so then uh yeah, his his. I thought there would be a little more confrontation between V and the Chancellor. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like a, a, maybe an admission of like, you know, this is what you did to me, and this is who I am. Because there are hints, there are hints in there, and this is what I want to talk to you about regarding the plot. Sure. Was V a victim, or was he working at that Lark Hill? Oh no, he was a victim. Because I have an alternate theory. I would love to hear it. At one point. He has a line, V has a line, that something to do with, I have to, I have to pay for what I've done. Mm -hmm. Something to that effect. I don't think that he was an actual prisoner. I think he worked in the Lark Hill facility and was a victim of this explosion that he found the notes from Valerie and that changed his mind about what he was doing and pointed out how horrible it was. Much like... The doctor, who has a change of heart and realizes what they were doing was wrong, I don't think he was a, a, a victim. I think he worked there for the government. That's and awful. That would make the film so much worse. There's that that, that robs his, all of his agency away from him, all of his actual motives to kill these people, um, all the romanticism that goes behind it. And not, while we're speaking about romanticism, it also robs the romanticism that they have the, to fight and die for their cause and be martyred for it. 
I or think, at the very least have their ideas be remembered. Like if V is a terrorist, which he absolutely is in this film, he has to have a motivation that is deep rooted in him. And to just have a change of heart because he worked there and he saw how awful things were, that that that's too easy. That's too simple. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of theories as to who V is. In the comics, it's heavily implied that he's Evie's father. Mm-hmm. Like um, Evie's father was black bagged and then, of course, became – a uh, part of Lark Hill and then was experimented on and became V himself. Um, we'd never find out if that's the case and they don't bother with that. Instead, they opt for the more American, uh, you know, romantic interest between Evie and V, which is patently obvious and boring. But in doing that, they allow V the space to actually, you know, express his frustration with the government. And I mean, more than just grandstanding, which he does almost immediately in the film, where he's pontificating and using Shakespeare and monologues to, to drive home a point. But in actuality, when we get to know him a little more, we still don't know enough. So we have to put the pieces together ourselves. Um, and it, a lot of it is telling in the doctor's journal. She she says that the person lost their memory, which also automatically ref, uh, nips your little theory there in the butt. But uh, he lost his memory, doesn't remember who he ever was, um, has something more inside of him that keeps him impervious uh, from this virus. And it's implied in a moment there that he's actually the source of the cure mm-hmm. for the St. Mary's uh, virus. So they never actually say that, but it's in there. Mm-hmm. And so when the explosion occurs and V is burnt, he is not killed. He is not wounded. He is actually powerful. And that goes... To to explaining how he can throw, you know, armed guards around uh, at the beginning, middle, and the end of the films because he's got some super strength attached to him. Either it's a direct result of the experiments that were put upon him, which again nips your theory in the butt, or he had something in him from the very beginning, which would seem odd because there's no one else in this world that has superpowers. Um, v is very much a victim here, but he uses. Wait, you you just used that because V stands for victim. Yeah, well, he used all the V words. He didn't use all the V words. Well, which ones did he use? Vegetables. You're right. He did not use vegetables. He didn't use vegetables. That's right. The one he didn't use. Uh, he could have just thrown that in right at the end of the of the V monologue where he's vivisection and vivitabababa. We are vivified. Vivified and vintage and venom. I don't know all the V words that he knows, I guess. Well, I mostly know vegetables. Uh, roll that clip, Jared. Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the vox populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent vermin vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition. The only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta held as a votive not in vain, for the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. <laughs> Verily, this vicious soise of verbiage veers most verbose, so let me simply add that it's my very good honor to meet you, and you may call me V. Are you like a crazy person? All right, so now that you've nipped my theory in the bud a few times... Didn't stand a chance. That's all right. You've, you've, you know, you've read the book. I've looked. I've seen it. I highly recommend you read it, because even though uh, it's a little less concise as the film, I mean, the film is the best version of a V for Vendetta story there could 
ever possibly exist, aside from a literal adaptation that is in the form of a HBO miniseries. I couldn't see it being adapted as anything more. It remains the only good Vertigo uh, retelling that exists out there. Um, if Alan Moore ever, you know, shakes himself down off of that grouchy tree and decides to finally sit down and watch one of his adaptations, I'd highly recommend to him to watch this film as if he'd ever fucking listened to me, look at me like I was an ant or something like that and make me piss my pants in fear. But or he'd look at you like you were a cheeseburger because he looks like he's always hungry. I don't think he eats. I don't think he eats. I think he holds a, uh, Wiccan rituals in he his basement, blood. and maybe no, he doesn't drink blood. I think he he probably drinks tea, blood tea, or he gives yeah he the blood's for the snake god that he keeps in the basement. Well, you know there are other ways to worship a snake god if you know what I mean. Absolutely. So Jared, now that we've uh, thoroughly decided. That V for Vendetta is probably an underrated film. Mm -hmm. uh, you got the political bubbles all going through my body right now. <laughs> so, coming Tuesday. Yes. Are you going to be uh, going to the polls and uh, casting your ballot for a presidential candidate? Do I look like an asshole to you? I mean... Do you want me to answer that? Uh, no, but I am no jerk. I am a citizen of this country, and I believe in its future and all that happy superlatives. Yes, of course, I will be voting. And I know you're voting. I'm voting. I'm absentee. Is that so? I think so. Well. I mean, I'm casting a vote. And I'm not And gonna... then you'll be able to <laughs> cast yourself a gloat. That's true. That's true. Hopefully. As everyone will be. I have a sticker. Yep. Where's your sticker? Oh. Yep, the sticker game. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you know, we encourage all the listeners up there, if you're thinking about not voting, that's probably a bad idea. Yeah, go vote. What's the matter with you? Get on the vote boat. <laughs> Get on the vote to gloat. And if you feel like you need some motivation, watch me for Vendetta first. Absolutely. If uh, if anything's going to jostle you, we didn't even get to talk about the Valerie scene. That This movie will do it. I, I wept two tears during the viewing with you today, and I've seen this movie at least six or seven times, and it gets me every single time. Once you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Valerie scene. Oof, yeah. we've got for this week thank you so much for joining us here at anti-monitor we're off next week but we'll see you soon in the meantime look us up on itunes if you haven't already give us a rating uh and subscribe if you haven't we need your support and we thank you for it if you have already look us up on social media twitter i am at jared jones underscore birdie where can they find you at bird money thank you bird until next time i remain jared jones that's birdie over there and from the rest of us at doomrocket.com People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Cry me a river. I cried a river over you. I cried a river.